0: Welcome and thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I am your host. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity today. Uh, A few podcasts ago, I began to do a series on famous theologians and famous pastors that have have influenced me or affected me. We looked at some famous theologians that have impacted my life personally and theologically and ministry-wise, and we looked at Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, we looked at John Owen, and today we're going to look at Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Jonathan Edwards really was the father of America's first Great Awakening. B.B. Warfield writes, It was a very decadent New England into which Edwards was born on October 5th, 1703. The religious fervor which the Puritan immigrants had brought with them into the New World had not been able to propagate itself unimpaired to the third and fourth generations. So the, the Puritans that had settled in America and had brought that religious fervor, it began to wane in New England. And so there was a lot of immorality. Uh, The young people were partying, if you can imagine that. And it was this culture that Jonathan Edwards was pastoring in that basically gave rise to God using his preaching, his ministry, to birth the first great awakening in America. Um, Edwards was the only son of the 11 children of Timothy Edwards, who was a local congregational pastor. And Jonathan Edwards as a youngster, which is really amazing, he began to study Latin at the age of six. Then he gained a respectable knowledge of Greek and Hebrew by the time he was 13. So think about that. If you're listening to this podcast and you have a 13-year-old, or maybe you're 13, he knew Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, basically by the time he was a 7th a grader. At 13, he entered Yale College and became engrossed in the writings of John Locke, a philosopher, um, especially Locke's essay concerning human understanding. Um, And Warfield, B.B. Warfield, has written a lot about Jonathan Edwards, basically said that the pleasure of studying Locke brought a lot of satisfaction to him uh, reading philosophy and so this is a a young boy who as a 13 year old is reading the philosophers is studying Greek and Hebrew and Latin Um, at an early age Edward would begin to begin um, writing things down preserving his thoughts Um, he he began writing at the age of about 15 He, he graduated number one from Yale at the age of 17 was licensed to preach at the Scotch Presbyterian Church in New York. and Shortly thereafter, um, he became the co-pastor with his grandfather, uh, Solomon Stoddard, at the Congregational Church in Northampton, Massachusetts. In 1723, he fell in love with Sarah Pierpont, and in 1727, they were married. Uh, he was 23, and she was 17, and they went on to have 11 children of their own. In his teenage and young adult years, um, Edwards wrote a journal which later became published as um, a personal narrative and resolutions, which really gives his testimony of saving faith, um, his his desires, his resolutions, his basically just like you would be writing in a journal, your aspirations as a young man, what you want to do with your life for God. And and here's what he says in in one of the personal narratives. He says from my childhood up my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing whom he would to eternal life and in rejecting whom he pleased it used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me and yet there's been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to God's sovereignty from that day to this so that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it in the most absolute sense in God's sovereignly Showing mercy to whom He will and hardening whom He will. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to describe to God. But my first conviction was not so. Like most of you that are probably listening to this podcast, you began your Christian life maybe with a more Arminian-leaning theology, or you bucked at the idea of God's absolute sovereignty, and that's the way Jonathan Edwards was. And he's very clear in his writings that I used to think it was a horrible decree, God's unconditional election of certain sinners to salvation and passing over others. But he says, now, I, I, I can't not believe that doctrine because I see it everywhere. But I was not inclined to have that when I first got saved. His personal time with God demonstrated to us a man who was truly, uh, had a devotion to Christ. Um, He would would to write this, and also in the personal narratives in his resolutions. He said, quote, I spend most of my time in thinking of divine things year after year, often walking alone in the woods and in solitary places for meditation, soliloquy and prayer, in conversations with God. And it was always my manner to sing forth, my contemplation. I was almost constantly in outburst of prayer wherever I was. So you just see the heart of Jonathan Edwards how he would walk around the woods and he would just think, he, he was probably one of the deepest thinkers in American history, combining deep thinking with solid theology. Between the years of 1722 and 1723, Edwards compiled over 70 personal convictions, which would go on to be called resolutions. Now, there's a lot of controversy over the resolutions. Sometimes these can be a little bit legalistic. These can be a little bit maybe too intense. Uh, This was, you know, a young man writing down what he wanted to do in his life. And so let me just give you some examples of those. Um, Resolution number four, resolved. To never do anything, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to glorify God. That's a good resolution. That's from the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians ten, thirty-one. Resolution number five, resolve never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I can. Resolution 32, resolve to be strictly and firmly faithful to my trust that in Proverbs 20, verse 6, a faithful man who can find may not be partly fulfilled in me just some examples of some resolutions that he personally wrote down of how he wanted to be a godly man, how he wanted to spend time with the Lord. Um, Maybe it's excessive to have 70 of them. Um, You know, a lot of times we make one New Year's resolution, and so uh, it's a controversial issue. Um, Jonathan Edwards is not without controversy in the Reformed um, world based upon some of his more uh, pietistic views that that may have been taken to an extreme. Um, In in 1729, at the death of his grandfather, remember he was co-pastor with his grandfather, um, Edwards became the senior pastor of what would have been considered a megachurch by today's standards. It was the Congregational Church of Northampton. It was probably the most influential church outside of Boston. At that time, it had uh, 620 members, most of the adult population of the town. And, And when he would preach, he would deliver usually a two-hour-long message each week. He would catechize the children in the church. He would counsel people in his study. Um, He did not engage in house-to-house visitation because he felt pastors should consult their own talent and circumstances. Uh, You could tell he understood his limitations. He was a writer, a thinker, and a preacher. And so it appeared to him that he could do the greatest good of the souls of men And promote the cause of christ by preaching and writing and conversing with persons under religious impressions in his study and so maybe an imbalance there in pastoral ministry in jonathan edwards and a lot of us may be like that Um, i will be very honest with you on this podcast Um, i tend to like to hold myself up in my study and read books on theology and study the original languages and prepare for messages and read and think and study that you can get so much involved in life in your study that you don't get out of your study and do evangelism do visitation um, obviously i do all those things as a pastor but sometimes different pastors are more um just just gifted in different areas I mean, some pastors they really don't like to spend a lot of time on sermon prep and studying. They'd rather be out among the people. They'd rather be out um, visiting and counseling. They're more people oriented. Uh, some pastors are more, you know, book and study oriented. Some are more missions, you know, missions oriented. And so it really just depends on how God has gifted you. But um, regardless of, of how God has gifted you, if you're going to be a pastor, you need to learn to um, excel, or at least. Um, do well in all of the areas of pastoral ministry. Now, it was very interesting because Edward's first major personal and ministerial struggle came in the issue of handling the Lord's Supper. Um, His grandfather had a somewhat loose view of the Lord's Supper. His grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, viewed uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, uh, as a converting ordinance and he opened it up to non-believers in hopes that through celebrating the Lord's Supper, they might be saved. Okay, so this is a, this is a big deal. This wasn't just, you know, should, should a, um, a, a, a non-baptized person take the Lord's Supper or should a non-member of your church. This was even allowing non-Christians to take the Lord's Supper. Now think about this. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was very... Um, against this view of allowing non-regenerate people to participate in the Lord's Supper. And so he had to address this with his own grandfather whose policies were somewhat loose on that. And so for years, Edwards personally grappled with this issue and with his congregation. But at this time, the Great Awakening had just broken out, so the focus shifted to other things. In 1735... Uh, Jonathan Edwards preached a two-week sermon entitled, Justification by Faith Alone. He would use the text of Romans chapter 4, verse 5 to preach that man is justified only by faith in Christ, not by any matter goodness of his own. So in the introduction to this sermon, um, here's what he wrote. He wrote that God of His sovereign grace is pleased in His dealing with the sinner, so to regard one that has no righteousness that the consequence shall be the same as if he had that righteousness. So, starting a sermon series on the imputed righteousness of Christ, talking about justification by faith alone, the, the gospel. And the overarching theme in this sermon was, again, the sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners. Now, what would happen during this time was that people were beginning to have their eyes opened by the Lord to their own sin They were coming under conviction. There were numerous conversions. And so there was a a revival, if you will, an awakening that broke out. And so more than 300 people got saved during the early months of the first great awakening. And there were a lot of naysayers. There were a lot of jealous pastors. There were a lot of men that didn't like what was happening. And so they condemned Edwards. They uh, basically downplayed revival and so edwards had to spend a lot of time defending the work of god in this spiritual outpouring one of his critics was reverend thomas prince of boston and in 1743 um, edwards wrote an open letter to reverend thomas prince explaining the revival explaining what was happening trying to tell him how God was moving and and converting a large amount of young people. And this is what he wrote. He says, There has been a great alteration among the youth of the town with respect to revelry, frolicking, profane and licentious conversation, lewd songs. There's also been a great alteration among both old and young with regard to tavern hunting, bar hopping we'd call that. I suppose the town has been in no measure so free of vice in these respects for any longer time altogether for 60 years as it has been in these nine years past. So basically what Edwards is saying is, listen, this revival has gotten lasting impact on the youth of this culture. They're not listening to lewd songs. They're not, you know, using profane language. They're not engaged in lewd behavior. They're not going to bars. And it sounds very similar to what what you would hear about today's culture. And so he's defending revival by showing the holiness and life that has happened over a sustained period of time. And he also talked about in this letter how many of the youth had responded to the revival. He said, quote, Many of the young people and children appeared to be overcome with the sense of the greatness and the glory of divine things, and with admiration, love, and joy. At the same time, many were overcome with distress about their sinful and miserable condition, so that the whole room was full of nothing but outcries, faintings, And the like. Now, this is where some things got um, Jonathan Edwards in trouble with the culture of his day because this weeping, wailing, grieving over sin, this was unusual for um, New England at that time. And it caused many to look at disdain with this revival. Um, And so Edwards formally responded to the critics with probably his most famous book or his most famous work, A Treatise Concerning the Religious Affections. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about what these religious affections are, but I, it's a very hard book to read. It's very Jonathan Edwards is difficult to read. Um, if you want some deep difficult reading. When you read the religious affections, I'll be honest with you, you start to read and, and you get about a paragraph in, you're like, I have to go back and read what I just read because I'm not quite tracking with what he's saying. So you have to be very, very persistent and observant when you're reading Jonathan Edwards. But let me just kind of give you some summary. Now, there, there's five major issues that can be present in the lives of a church or individual which do not constitute true religious revival okay so when you think about counterfeit revivals happening today and all the different crazy word faith things that you may see um, on television or whatever uh, these revivals that are popping up uh, these things um, are are phenomenon that that, they carry a lot of things that happen with them that may be kind of aberrant or weird or false and so what Jonathan Edwards is tempted to do is say listen in true revival Here's what happens, and here's what doesn't necessarily have to happen. And so the first thing he would say is just because emotions or feelings are raised to a level of spiritual high does not mean that revival has occurred. He says, quote, There are religious affections which are very high that are not spiritual and saving. There may be religious affections which are raised to a very high degree, and yet there be nothing of true religion. And he uses the Golden Calf episode in Exodus As an example, along with the fervor of those at Palm Sunday who one week later cried, crucify him. So just because there's heightened emotion doesn't necessarily mean there's revival. You can have a lot of people in a room being very emotional and not have true religious conversion. And when he uses the word religious affections, um, I'll define, maybe it's probably good to define that here, even though I'll try to talk about it here in just a moment affections are not necessarily emotions but they're close Um, what he's talking about is true heartfelt devotion and passion for christ that comes as a result of truly being converted truly being regenerated that's truly of the holy spirit not just this false hype or this pseudo emotional experience but true regeneration by the Holy Spirit that causes people to truly become Christians and to have that devotion for Christ that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what a religious affection is. He says, secondly, great effects on the body certainly are no sure evidence that affections are spiritual. Um, Some people believe that they experience something supernatural or unexplainable or they, they start to shake then true spiritual transformation has occurred. And he would say, Jonathan Edwards, what they may have been subjects of may indeed not be from themselves directly, but may be from the operations of an invisible agent. There are other spirits who have influence over the minds of men besides the Holy Spirit. We are directed not to believe every spirit, but to try the spirits, whether they be of God. Just because someone uses Scripture to prove his or her point And an emotional response is given, does not mean that revival has occurred. Um, Edwards uses the example of heretical teachers used by Satan to distort the scriptures. He also says that just because you're singing praises to God does not necessarily mean that you've truly been saved. So there's a lot of things that can happen in quote-unquote revival that, that don't necessarily mean revival or true spiritual awakenings come. Just because there's emotion, just because there's singing, just because there's even physical manifestations, those things don't guarantee anything regarding the true work of God. So what does actually constitute true spiritual revival or awakening? Well, Edwards would say that the first objective evidence is an acute awareness of sin and hell and then an overwhelming sense of God's perfect love for the sinner. In other words, salvation does not become, you know, what am I going to get out of this? But it's this whole idea that I am a sinner and I'm under God's wrath. And if He does not save me from my sin, which I cannot save myself, I will die and spend eternity apart from Him in hell. And you become overwhelmed in sovereign election that God has chosen you to be saved. And you develop this gracious gratitude that comes in obedience to Christ where you expect persecution and you develop endurance. Edwards would hearken back to the Lord's Supper episode that I talked about earlier of unregenerate sinners um, hypocritically praising God and acting holy even though they're partaking of the Lord's Supper. He argues that without a change of nature man's practice will not thoroughly be changed. This is what he writes. He says, "...we need to make a full choice as our only Lord and portion, forsaking all for Him, and in full determination of the will of Christ on counting the cost, embracing it with all its difficulties, as if we were hating our dearest earthly enjoyments and even our lives, for Christ giving up ourselves with all that we have, holy and forever under Christ, without keeping anything back in the great duty of self-denial for Christ. Probably Edwards' greatest contribution to theology was this whole idea of the sovereignty of God. As time went on, after the First Great Awakening, which lasted around nine years he became somewhat disillusioned with his church for for not showing any enduring or lasting evidence of true change. And he felt that it was his duty as pastor to lead people back to the truth, especially in the area of celebrating the Lord's Supper. There were still non-believers doing that. Remember that practice that his grandfather set up of non-believers taking the Lord's Supper, it took him a long time to work through that. So after two years of battling leadership, after the First Great Awakening, on June 22nd, 1750, the church voted him out as their long-term pastor. Can you believe that? Jonathan Edwards was voted out of his church. Your church experienced nine years of revival and spiritual awakening. You'd seen the move of God and yet this theological issue of the Lord's Supper that would stemmed all the way back from a practice that his grandfather had led to the church actually voting him out. Well, two weeks later, he preached his famous farewell sermon. And this was his admonition. He said, quote, May God bless you with a faithful pastor, one that is well acquainted with his mind and will, thoroughly warning sinners, wisely and skillfully searching professors, and conducting you in a way to eternal blessedness. So he left basically praying that the congregation would find a faithful pastor who would warn sinners, who would help the saved grow in Christ and that would lead them in the Lord. Now, this was a new challenge in Jonathan Edwards' life because he was no longer a pastor. So, he became a missionary to the Native Americans, the Indians on the frontier near Stockbridge. And this is where he enjoyed his most prolific writing. And the main purpose of his writing really was to combat the the rampant Arminianism of the day with the defense of the doctrines of grace or Reformed theology. Um, He wrote some of his most um, powerful writings during that time, The Freedom of the Will, Original sin, the end for which God created the world, and the nature of virtue. He was also the biographer of the life of David Brainerd, a missionary to the, to the Native Americans who was actually engaged to Jonathan Edwards' daughter. Um, the life of David Brainerd, which Jonathan Edwards wrote, influenced many missionaries like William Carey and David Livingstone and, and Andrew Fuller. Later on in 1758, uh, he humbly accepted the presidency of Princeton College and three months later he died of smallpox inoculation. But his influence upon American Christianity was manifold in that his preaching unified New England under a common purpose for the first time ever in the nation's infancy. This first great awakening is embedded in our country's religious psyche. It provided an impetus for the westward expansion of the gospel into areas such as Kentucky, Tennessee, and Missouri. Princeton College evolved, when he was a president of, evolved into a bastion of old-line Calvinism, where B.B. Warfield and others emerged from. And when you think about the legacy of Jonathan Edwards, there, there's so much to say about just a lot of the things that he, that he wrote. I don't want to go into all of them, but the, the divine and supernatural light that um, sermon was very, very interesting because it talks about how a person has to truly be regenerated by the Holy Spirit in order to truly be able to see the glory of Christ. And his whole, you know, the whole idea is that you know, our minds are blinded by the God of this age from seeing the glory of Christ, and so God has to open our eyes. And he makes a, one of probably his famous illustrations in that sermon is about the honey. And basically, the illustration goes like this. You can know what honey looks like by looking at it. You can see it's goldish, amberish color. You can look that it's sticky. You can understand that it comes from bees. You can have cognitive knowledge of honey, that it is honey, but you really haven't truly experienced the honey until you've actually tasted it on your lips and you've ingested it, and, and it's the sweetness. He says it's the same thing with Christ. You can know about Christ. You can have cognitive knowledge of Christ. You can have the historical facts about Christ and still not be saved. It's not until you taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not until the Holy Spirit regenerates you and causes your eyes to see the glory of Christ and you embrace Christ fully in the gospel. You receive Him as your own personal Lord and Savior that you truly become a Christian. The treatise on religious affections that he wrote is widely regarded as probably one of the most profound and influential books on biblical spirituality, at least in American life. And it's a very difficult read. Um, Again, I talked about the fact that he wrote that as a way to combat those who question the validity of the revival during the first great awakening in new england Um, and so opponents said man if, if this is revival then this is not of god there's there's too many false conversions there's unusual manifestations there's all these weird things happening and so what edwards does is he again shows what a masterful job or he does a masterful job in showing just exactly what true conversion is and so Let's just talk about a few of these things. The first mark of genuine conversion, I won't give all of these, but it's, it's pretty helpful for, for how he walks through how God saves a sinner, uh, what is true and false conversion, because there's a lot of confusion out there. Just because somebody um, raises their hands at an altar call, or somebody goes forward, or somebody gets emotional, or you get wrapped up in the, the emotion of a, of a camp meeting or whatever, doesn't necessarily mean that that person is saved. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not saved, but it doesn't mean that just because they experience that particular phenomenon, they're saved. And so, he says, number one, God alone must sovereignly regenerate the sinner. And conversion does not come about by human nature, emotionalism, or even understanding of biblical knowledge, but by the monergistic work of God. And so the Bible is very clear that our regeneration is the sovereign working of God alone. John 1, 12-13, But to all who did receive Him and believed His name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are born of God. God makes us believers in Christ. Why? We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We could not make ourselves alive. We could not come to Christ on our own. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. The first principle that Jonathan Edwards wants us to understand in conversion is that God must sovereignly cause a spiritually dead sinner to come to life so that they can come to faith in Christ. And so all other arguments or principles flow from this first assertion that true conversion is supernatural in nature and that God alone does the work of grace. So that's his first mark of conversion. Well, let's look at the second mark of conversion from the religious affections or the second proof that someone is truly saved. So here's the, the, and again, I'm not going to go through all of these. I'm just going to go through a few of these. Number two, a truly regenerated person loves God first and foremost for who he is not primarily for the benefits or blessings that He may bring in salvation that we enjoy. This is very important because we live in a consumeristic evangelical subculture where we have this prosperity gospel or maybe even the self-esteem gospel that basically says that the only reason you come to faith in Christ is so that he can bless you or what he can give you. You come to Jesus for the benefits that he's going to get you. Now, now don't get me wrong here. We do receive tremendous blessings from Christ, but that should not be the motivation for us to love him, to worship him, to come to him. We love Jesus because of who he he intrinsically is regardless of whether we ever get blessed by him and so listen to how Edwards describes this he says Christians don't first see that God loves them and then see that he's holy but they first see that God is lovely and that Christ is excellent and glorious and their hearts are first captivated with this view Love for self and what happiness they may attain in this glorious God is secondary and consequential to their recognition of His intrinsic beauty. Now, that's a a very, very important statement from Jonathan Edwards. We, first and foremost, see Christ as glorious and beautiful and worthy and as our treasure because of who He is. Secondarily and consequentially, We see Christ for the things that he is going to bless us with, namely forgiveness of sins in heaven and things like that. So a truly regenerated person comes to faith in Christ, not primarily for the benefits that Christ gives, but simply because in coming to Christ, we find the greatest treasure in him. He is enough in and of himself. You see, oftentimes in evangelism, we try to appeal to the benefits of coming to Christ as the motivation to help sinners see their need to repent and believe instead of showing a sinner the intrinsic worth of Christ himself. We tell sinners, uh, you know, you can just have your best life now, you'll have a better life, you'll have um, great assurance, you'll have great peace, you'll have, um, Jesus will improve your life. Um, the Word, Faith, Prosperity Gospel will say, you know, you, if you come to Christ, you won't ever be sick, you'll have unlimited wealth, you won't suffer, as long as you sow your seed into some televangelist ministry. And so what you're doing is you're telling sinners, you come to Christ to get stuff. You don't come to Christ to get Christ. And Edwards argues that a truly converted person comes to Jesus simply because he or she sees the infinite worth and beauty of Jesus is altogether lovely, and that Christ is supremely to be treasured. A few years back, I read a powerful statement by by John Piper, another John, in his book, God is the Gospel. Um, And and I think, obviously, John Piper is heavily influenced by Jonathan Edwards, but this this, uh, particular quote has really lived with me for a long time. John Piper says, quote, if you could have heaven... With no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauty you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? Ponder that truth for a moment. Do you love Jesus because of what you get from Jesus? Or do you love Jesus? Jesus simply because you get Jesus. So that's mark number two of genuine conversion that Jonathan Edwards would write about in the religious affections. Let's just look at a few more. Uh, the third mark, he would say the first and primary attribute or characteristic of God that the regenerated person savors and relishes is his absolute holiness what truly melts the heart of a believer is a glimpse at the holiness of god in the person of work of christ edwards calls this a taste or an appetite for the moral excellency of divine things he writes this about christians he says quote their love to god for his holiness is what is most fundamental and essential in their love. A love to God for the beauty of his moral attributes leads to and necessarily causes a delight in God, in all his attributes. In other words, the overarching, overarching attribute of God is his holiness. And when we see the holiness of God, it inflames our hearts because it is so pure, it's so beautiful. Every other attribute flows from the holiness of God. Psalm 29.2, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Psalm 77.13, Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. Psalm 96.9, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him in all the earth. Isaiah 6.3, the seraphim call to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. You know, these are countercultural things when you think about it for a moment, okay? When you just think about standard evangelical language, standard evangelical teaching, when you, when you turn on the radio, when you, when you listen to, to televangelists, these things are not what you hear. You don't hear that God must sovereignly regenerate a sinner by sovereign grace through unconditional election. You don't often hear that unless you're from the Reformed uh, persuasion. You're in the Reformed tradition. You don't hear you come to Christ because it's Christ, not because of the benefits that He's going to give you. You don't hear that the, one of the chief things that warms the heart of a believer is that we savor, we enjoy, we find pleasure in the absolute holiness of God because He's intrinsically and morally excellent. These are just things that we don't think about. Edwards would say this, quote, What will melt and humble hearts of men and wean them from the world And draw them to God and effectually change them is relishing the sweetness of God in Christ in all His holy perfections. Okay, think about what it means to be weaned. What's going to wean you off the world? What's going to get you off of your preoccupation with the world? Well, Jonathan Edwards says it's going to be When our hearts are melted by relishing the sweetness of God in Christ in all his holy perfections. And so, my encouragement to you is that we would be weaned off of our affection for the world and have our eyes open to the glory of Christ. And so, Jonathan Edwards would say that is one of the marks of a true Christian that you are truly seeing the holiness of God, the glory of God. And you're asking the Holy Spirit to melt your heart with that so that you can truly be weaned off the world and find your greatest satisfaction in Jesus. Let's just look at a few more of these. So the the fourth mark of a true converted person, according to Jonathan Edwards' religious affections, um, is what he would call um, an enlightened mind to the truths of Scripture. Scripture. I'm um, an enlightened mind. Uh, a non-believer can read their Bible. They can understand the content of the Bible. Uh, they can possibly assent with head knowledge to what the scripture says. But a non-regenerate person cannot have an enlightened mind to truly, really understand the Bible, truly love the scriptures. They really don't have the capacity to obey. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 14, the natural person or the lost person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So a lost person can read facts, can have the gospel presented to them, can know the content of the gospel, but until God does that work, like the honey we talked about earlier, the difference between just knowing something and truly tasting it and receiving it, God has to enlighten the mind, and that comes through the converting power of the Holy Spirit. A truly converted person doesn't just cognitively understand the principles of the gospel, but you relish, you savor, you enjoy those in Christ. It's not just that you have new biblical knowledge, it's not just that you have a deposit of doctrinal truth, which is extremely important. But in regeneration, believers have a new taste. And that's very, that's very um, John Ed, Jonathan Edwardsian taste. You, you have a new taste to enjoy the beauty and the sweetness of those truths in Scripture that you're reading. So here's the thing. You don't just agree with the Scripture in your mind. I, I agree with that but your souls have been awakened to love, obey, and cherish those truths that you're reading. You see, here's a huge difference between a lost person and a saved person. A lost person can read the Bible and know the facts about what Jesus did on the cross. The the demons believe in God and shudder. A lost person can even see Christ portrayed in the gospel and be a little bit moved emotionally. But a lost person can't truly find pleasure in the scriptures and love to obey what he or she reads because they want to please Christ. That only comes from a regenerated heart that the Holy Spirit does when he converts a lost sinner. And so one of the things that that comes to us in salvation is a new taste, a new taste for God's word. Let's just look at one more. This is religious affections. uh, Let's look at the fifth mark of true conversion or authentic conversion. He he would say this, in regeneration, God works in the heart to convince the sinner of both the certainty and the beauty of the gospel. Edwards says that true conversion is accompanied by a deep-seated conviction, quote, of a solid, full, thorough, and effectual conviction of the truth. Of the great things of the gospel. So, this spirit produced conviction leads a believer to lose all things as rubbish for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Now, obviously, there must be historical knowledge of the facts of the gospel. You have to be certain of what Christ did in his death, burial, and resurrection. But again, that's not enough of just being born again. Just having certainty of the facts is not saving faith. There must be this new conviction that the Holy Spirit brings about in you of not only the certainty of the gospel, but of the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel. And this is what happened when Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. Peter just didn't somehow come up with this on his own, but his, his mind was open to not only who the truth of Christ was, but the beauty. Matthew 16, 16 through 17, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, and blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. See, before we were converted, before we became saved, the Bible says we were dead in sin, Ephesians 2.1. We were blinded by Satan. But when God in his awesome power birthed faith in our hearts, he opened our eyes not only to the facts and the certainty of Jesus in the gospel, but also to the beauty of Jesus and the gospel. This is Probably most clearly stated in Paul's letter to 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul writes, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for your sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge. Of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When you become a Christian, when the Holy Spirit turns that light bulb on, you you now have the knowledge of the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. This is a spirit birth knowledge produced within us that results in heartfelt and strong conviction that the gospel is not just true, it's not just certain, it's not just a historical fact, but it's also beautiful and glorious. And so, as believers, we need both, okay? We need to have the assurance, the certainty that what we believe about Jesus in the gospel is actually true and actually rooted in historical reality. We have to know that it's certain, but we also need to have this truth become precious and beautiful and glorious to us. You know, a very elementary way of saying it is that we need to have both heart and head knowledge of the scriptures, The truth of the Scriptures must inform our minds so that we are certain, but they must also inflame our hearts with the passion for Christ. We learn the Bible not just for information, yes, but also for transformation. And once we've been transformed by the sovereign regeneration of God's Spirit, He produces within us a solid confidence and conviction in the truth of the gospel. Jonathan Edwards would say this, quote, "...to have a conviction so clear and evident and assuring as to be sufficient to induce them with boldness to sell all confidently and fearlessly to run the venture of the loss of all things and of enduring the most exquisite and long continued torments and to trample the world underfoot and to count all things but dung for Christ. That commitment, To give up all, to see everything as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ comes from the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to not only the certainty of the gospel, but the beauty of the gospel. One of the clearest proofs that you and I have been born again is that we see in Christ the greatest treasure worth pursuing. And we not only believe the gospel to be historically true, but also worth giving up up everything else as dung as Paul would say in Philippians 3 to gain Jesus as the greatest prize Paul says in Philippians 3 7 through 9 but whatever gain I had I counted as loss for the sake of Christ indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, non-believers may admire Jesus as a good teacher. They may even assent to the historical facts of the gospel. And they may have some certainty as to if it, that it is true, but they in no way would give up all for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That is only true of someone who is truly born again. So these are some of the marks of genuine conversion that you see from Jonathan Edwards in his religious affections. I often like to go read some of Jonathan Edwards' sermons, um, his work on the freedom of the will. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is very famous for making... The, the statement that a, a person chooses based upon their nature. And so if you're a lost person, if you're dead in sin, if you're enslaved and in bondage to the devil, if you're lost, you're always going to choose based upon your nature. And what is your nature? Your nature is lost. So you're always going to choose based upon what you want to do in your lost state. And you'll never come to Christ unless God overcomes that lostness, that deadness, by sovereignly regenerating you. So in a way, humans do have freedom. We have freedom to choose, but we're always going to choose based upon our nature. So if anybody's going to choose for Christ, if anybody's going to come to Christ, he or she must have their nature changed so that their choices will change. You can't change your nature, only God can do that in sovereign regeneration. And once God changes your nature, causes you to be born again, overcomes that deadness, then you freely choose out of that new nature. You come to Christ, you trust in Jesus, you freely repent and believe, but it's because your nature has been changed sovereignly by God. That's Jonathan Edwards, the freedom of the will. Well, we could go on and on about the legacy of Jonathan Edwards. Again, he's somewhat of a controversial figure just because um, he's probably the, most people consider him the greatest mind, philosophical and theological that America has ever produced. And he's very difficult to read. He's very profound. But he has left an impact on American Christianity. Some in the Reformed tradition would say, you know what, we really don't, Agree with everything Jonathan Edwards says. He may have gone a little bit too far on some things. But you can't deny the fact of his impact, his imprint on American Christianity. So I'd encourage you to go online. You can go online to monergism.com or just type in Google. uh, Read some of Jonathan Edwards. If you want to, go read some of his sermons first. Those are a little bit easier to read. The Religious Affections is very, very difficult to read. Um, you can go read um, a lot of things that Jonathan, uh, or that John Piper has written on Jonathan Edwards are helpful as well. And so I'd encourage you to get familiar with uh, Jonathan Edwards, the father of the first Great Awakening in America. Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I hope this has been a helpful podcast um, diving into the the world of the of historical figures that have impacted me uh, personally and theologically. And so um, I, I hope that you have been blessed by listening to our podcast. You can contact us at seancole.net. You can go to the Understanding Christianity Facebook page. Uh, You can also uh, give us a positive review and rating on iTunes. We'd we'd love to hear from you. You can email me, contact me. Um, We'd love to get feedback from you to help us know what other topics we could be doing on a future podcast. Well, until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you, cause His face to shine upon you, and would you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus we we'll